0: welcome to another amazing episode of the pace and freedom podcast i am your host james pace and today is a very very special day not only i have a great guest who happens to be a presidential candidate i also have on board the most amazing co-host in libertarian podcast history miss stevie madison how does it feel stevie to be finally be on here
1: so good. I'm so excited to be here with you. You've been so amazing to me, and I'm excited to have this platform and to have it alongside you, James.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we've been uh, kind of planning this for a while, making sure everything was going to uh, go smoothly. We got you some equipment, and we have to thank some of our listeners and helping us out to, to get that to you. And uh, yeah, we're all set up now. I'd like to make a quick introduction to our guest, Mark Whitney, who is seeking the Libertarian Party presidential nomination and has become somewhat of a controversial figure in the presidential race. But I'll let Mark get a chance to describe himself and give us a more formal introduction of himself. Go ahead, Mark. Hey,
2: everybody. I am Mark Whitney. Yeah, uh, You know, it it surprised me uh, how controversial I became. But it turns out it took me, it took me about a month to figure out how to run properly for president. I'm good now, you know. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, I kind of came out of the gate very aggressive. And I thought when you're running for president, you're meant to just come out and destroy your opponents and and be strong and be fierce. But, uh, you know, after about a month of uh, doing this, I think we found the right balance. Uh, The the campaign has a A lot of momentum. I think we're controlling the narrative right now with the new digital world that we live in. I was the first candidate among the 20 or so who were running to say, hey, we need to start debating each other online. I've had five or six candidates agree to do that. Other candidates uh, a week after I did that are now saying, hey, we should debate each other online. So everything's going my way right now.
0: There you have it. I, I do think that kind of the online presence is critical and today and age, but however, something that I've noticed from personal experience—I uh, actually ran a small campaign for a little bit when I was trying to run for city council here in San Diego. Um, wasn't successful, but uh, you're it's- in San Diego. You didn't, yes, I didn't sir. know you
2: were in San Diego. I could <laughs> I could be in your studio right now. Uh, we could be trading viruses. <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're all kind of remote right now. Stevie's here in San Diego, but she's at uh, her place. I'm at my place. And uh, we kind of don't have a, a studio quite yet. Uh, I just recently moved, so I'm still trying to unpack and get everything sorted. Uh-huh. But
2: yeah. Um, yeah, we're getting there. You have to and, come by and see my studio sometime. It's amazing. Yeah, You're definitely. Yeah. I'm up in uh, Sereno Valley, up by Qualcomm.
1: Oh, my god! Oh, wow. Five minutes down the street.
2: Oh, my <laughs> God. We should so get pizza if we can find <laughs> some place to do it legally.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: We can have a black market pizza. Yeah. You know? There you go. Well, let's All talk right, a little bit about.
1: Pizza, you bring the moonshine.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Whatever, whatever it takes to get your vote. I'm a politician now, you know? If I have to, <laughs> I have to get you drunk to get your vote, I'm not above doing that.
1: <laughs> I love it.
0: So, I mean, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that since you brought it up, Mark. I mean, we're to the point of almost borderline martial law here in San Diego and, and a lot of other big cities as well. Right. Uh, I'm- I mean, Chicago is basically there and uh, we're almost there. What what are, what, are your thoughts on all of this? I mean, is this necessary or it's just a, uh, a government coup against the people? Well, you
2: know, I have a unique perspective on this as a presidential candidate because uh, 30 years ago, thanks to the Department of Justice, I actually had the opportunity to be on home confinement. So it sucks, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a... Uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I think that uh, if you're running for president, you need to be able to see two or three sides of things. So the, the first the first data point, I think, for me is that, uh, you know, our first our first the first thing we do as libertarians, it's reflexive, is criticize the government. And there's plenty to criticize right now. But at the same time, uh, the, the corporations who own our government, they don't want this. And our government doesn't want this. I mean, they've had to put off tax day for three months. Uh, uh, the incumbent politicians, you know, the Republican and Democrat national committees—they have the game rigged. Uh, this throws this virus situation throws a monkey wrench into the predictability that they have built into the system. So, so here's a political question, right? Do you benefit as the governor of California? If if, uh, if if we don't have 100,000 people die from this in the next six months, does that help you or hurt you? Those are the kinds of questions they're asking themselves, right? So if, 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 only, if only 500 people die from this virus in the next six months, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is going to pay a big political price for all of this martial law that's been imposed. On the other hand, if 100,000 people die, He's gonna get he's gonna win in a landslide for saving lives uh, My point being they they don't want this uh, certainly citizens don't want it nobody wants it um, and I think we're all getting an education I know I am um, <clears throat> because one of the first things I wanted to do uh, earlier this week is is dig in and find out where the authority for this came from on the part of the president especially. And geez, there's a whole there's a whole body of statutes and laws in Title 50 of the United States Code, uh, where pretty much with the stroke of a pen, the president can declare himself Muammar Gaddafi, and I don't think a lot of us were really aware of the extent of the power that that a president can assume onto himself, and of course that power was delegated uh, fair and square by the Democrats and Republicans in Congress. So we're going to have a lot of unpacking to do after this. uh, But I think as a practical matter, now that we're in it, um, it is what it is. And we all and it's such a cliche, you know, but we really are all in this together. Uh, I don't think it's a hoax. I think it's a real thing. So I think all we can do is learn from it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what. Stevie thinks about this, but I I don't believe it's a hoax, but I don't believe it's as grave as people are making it sound. I mean, I get that there are people dying, but the numbers to me just don't reflect a pandemic. And I get that the governor doesn't want this or, you know, our state governments don't want this, but they're definitely taking advantage of it. Uh, and as far as gaining more power and having people give up more of their freedoms that they might not give back.
1: It's, it's interesting that you say they're taking advantage of it because I think there's I believe there's an aspect of probably it being taken advantage of, but also the aspect of panic breeding panic and hysteria being contagious. You know, so I think it comes from the people as well. Like, why the fuck are we out of toilet paper? Because some group of people decided that that was the thing we needed to buy, and so the rest of the country did it. But I do agree. I think there's some aspect of it being taken advantage. I thought what you said, Mark, about um, about Governor Newsom, and if 500 people die, uh, you know, he's he's going to get it for you know, invoking martial law, if 100,000 people die, then he, uh, you know, saved saved a bunch of lives. Um, Isn't that, isn't that sort of backwards?
2: Yeah, you could, you could argue it both ways. That's, that's sort of the multiple truth world that we're in right now. You can argue. And that's why I say politicians don't want this. They don't like variables.
1: Right? Well, like, either way, it seems like you can't win. Which if right. it's true we know that right? Like no matter what you do, you're going to be criticized. But that's interesting. Five hundred people die, and he gets, you know, potentially slaughtered for doing too much. One hundred thousand people die, and he's hailed a hero for saving lives.
2: Right, and it sounds it sounds cold blooded for us to even be doing like an analysis between a thousand people and hundred thousand people dying. But the reality is. That, you know, if you hold a position like governor of California or president of the United States, you're doing exactly those political calculations. Right. And, and we saw that with Trump this week where he declared himself a wartime president because he knows that, that that people are programmed to be deferential and empathetic with a wartime president because the wartime president is carrying all this burden on his shoulders and uh, so I think they have found a way to make this work uh, politically for them, at least in the Trump administration.
0: I, I completely agree. And I would even take it a step further with, with this environment that we're in right now. I mean, we have some states that are suspending primaries, and I foresee even the general election being suspended, giving him more time to strategize or get more power. and.
2: Yeah, I'm trying. I've been I've been wondering about that too. Um, uh, I'm I'm I've been trying to imagine constitutionally um, how that would happen uh, because the constitution requires that there be an election, uh, and uh, uh, what happens if it's too dangerous for people to vote? I've always thought that we should be voting with cell phones, and the reason that we don't vote with cell phones is because m- we would probably have Ninety percent of registered voters voting if people were voting with cell phones and incumbents don't want that. Incumbent politicians want low voter turnout. They do everything they can to discourage voting. Uh, But, you know, we're going to come out on the other side of this. There's going. So so you talk about the loss of freedoms that are happening now that could become permanent. But there's also going to be tremendous insight and engagement on the other side of this experience. Here's an example. Uh, uh, here in uh, San Diego, uh, when the police uh, uh, stop a, a, a somebody uh, who they might otherwise be putting in handcuffs and dragging off to jail, they're just giving that person a citation. So on the other side of this, you can say, why weren't you doing that all along? If it wasn't necessary to bring the person to jail, why don't we just cite the person? And then if they don't show up for the hearing, well, then we start talking about jail. So there are things that are being done now that we can ask questions later saying, why don't we just make that permanent? And that would actually be an improvement.
1: Well, that's Absolutely. What, that's what I was saying. Well, James and I were talking about this yesterday, and I was saying, you know, God, there's we're not going back to, like, normal. Whatever normal was before this, we're, no. not, we're definitely not going back to that. And we were having a conversation. And that's kind of what I was trying to get at yesterday, James, was like, I think certain things like that, you know, people are going to um enough is enough. Like this whole conversation <coughs> about people not being able to pay rent. And I'm seeing a lot of right. um, a lot of conversations with like landlords and tenants and the landlords are just, you know, and the people who live paycheck to paycheck working multiple jobs or having families or whatever that are barely surviving anyway. And now we have this yep. huge burden, like what is that going to look like when this is all over and what is the demand going to be for change for those types of situations?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I kind of see it I, and I agree. I, I 100% agree, but I'd still see certain powers, certain authorities trying to make sure that we don't, Make changes to the positive, for example, with the Fed pumping out trillions of dollars now, unbelievable. You, know, it's unbelievable. You, would, you would think that with this epi- uh, you know this pandemic, that you would start seeing prices of certain items starting to drop uh, significant, uh, significantly, and it can't because of the inflation that now the Fed is creating. So they want to maintain those high prices even though logically it should be going down
2: yeah, and that's what's that's what's antithetical about a system that that runs on borrowed pretend money, right so nobody I've been an entrepreneur for forty years. there's no universe in which I'm going to pump money into my business at this time. Right there's no universe in which that's going to happen, but that's exactly what the government is doing. They're literally throwing good money after bad, so they can they can continue to create this Disneyland that we live in, where things are better than they really are, and the, the price to be paid for that is put off for another day. So we continue to live in this Alice in Wonderland world, where uh you know people can go people uh, you know on CNN and the PBS NewsHour. They can go on TV and say, "Hey, look, the numbers are nice and they're better," and and then they just stop there. That's where the analysis stops.
1: That's interesting. I love that that you put it that way. We're living in Alice in Wonderland,
2: right? So, yeah. so the other, but the other thing, you know, I'm just I'm just programmed to always try to manage to the opportunity and to the reward. I'm just not. I, I'm aware of risk and things like that, but I'm really programmed. My brain just is always, "What is the opportunity here?" Don't you think? I think a lot of employers are going to come out on the other end of this and they're going to sit down and crunch the numbers. They're going to go, God damn, uh, we were able to run our business with people working from home for, you know, uh, 12% less uh, than we've ever been able to. we can cut our back office expenses by 12 or 15% by having this batch of people telecommute or we can make telecommuting an option and have that be more normalized and a lot of people would be very excited about that because they would have the opportunity of having uh, their kids home with them instead of dropping them off to daycare. You know, there are all sorts of lifestyle, positive lifestyle changes that that can come from what is perceived now as adversity.
1: Well, that's been a big, I've seen that conversation quite a bit about, and there was some tweets that went viral about like, if, if this has taught us anything, I remember the first one was, Jobs that they said that could not be done from home can be done from home. And other conversations talking about disabled, um, maybe mentally ill people who have major limitations who are told, no, you have to come into the office. This, you cannot work remotely. Now all of a sudden you're able to work remotely. What the fuck? What is that about? Like, so I think, like you said, on the employer side, hopefully they're going to see some benefit there. I don't, I don't employ a staff, so I don't know what that would look like. But right. on the employee side, that again, that demand for like we're not running our lives into the ground anymore. Like our society has needed such a shift in balance for quality of life for so long.
2: Yes, and exactly. I think
1: yeah. I, I hope you know, like I, I I don't hope for the suffering, obviously, but like I hope that this is the change that people finally are like, I'm done running myself into the ground to make you rich Um,
0: Mm -hmm. right i I definitely see
1: (laughs)
2: right
0: i definitely see where this is like a great opportunity for libertarians to really shine right and uh, libertarian entrepreneurs as well to really show what we are capable of without government, right? Yep. Yep. And you know, I've seen a great, great examples of this. Uh, just before we started uh, today, I was reading a post from a friend of mine on Facebook, all the way in uh, in Spain, and she was describing how a lot of these mom and pop markets that didn't that were starting to get closed down and starting to get hurt by the major chains are now benefiting from this because now they're offering some real solutions to the problem like uh, we're going to structure our business to where we will provide for senior people at certain times. Mm-hmm. We're going to do all this kind of delivery process now and they're really shining and solving the problems.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, yeah, go ahead. It's
1: going to come down to people. It's going to come down to humanity.
2: Yeah, I've been talking a lot about that this week on my show Live at Five, which I do every day at 5 p.m. Pacific time on Facebook, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, don't let this make you crazy. Don't let this make you psychotic. You know, uh, uh, you know, some of the some of the people in our party are just right there on the edge. And, uh, you know, you don't want to let this put you over the edge. You want to look for the opportunity. Uh, you know, there is an enormous increase, uh, in, an exponential increase in demand for certain services. Um, people are at home. And, uh, you know, how can you help people who need services? Um, I'll give you an example Uh what's happened in our house. So, so my wife and I have been together. I've known her since the sixth grade. I mean, we went to high school together. We started dating in the last year of high school. So we're 60 now. We've been Together forever, but she's got this thing going on in her back where there's like, I don't know, there's some kind of pinched nerve in a disc or something that goes down her sciatica, and she's been getting treated for it. Um, uh, and she got this one shot. Uh, they shoot her up with steroids or something, then they're going to have her back in a month. But that shot has been canceled. Uh, not anything that is elective has been canceled at the hospitals in our neighborhood. And I don't know what the threshold is for pain where it's no longer non-elective. But in her case, like, she has nights where she – she has times where she just has to lay on the floor to be comfortable. And, uh, you know, the the plan was to get one more shot. And then if that didn't work, they were going to actually do surgery on her back. And that takes a long time to recover from. My point being that my wife needs help. You know, she uh, she needs – uh, she needs services. She needs people to go shopping for her. Uh, she needs people to, to do, uh, we need people to do a lot of the things that we would normally do ourselves. I'm out of pocket running for president. Uh, and there are a lot of people uh, like us uh, who need services. And, um, you know, it's really, it's really incumbent on people to keep an open mind and look around and see, you know, if you've been thinking about starting a business, you've been thinking about writing a book, uh, thinking about any, think about learning a language, you know, what can you do with this time to, to, uh, uh, generate some income if you need it, but also to put yourself in a position to be more successful when we return to normal life.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I want to ask Mark a little bit about your, um, you know, your campaign. We talked a little bit about your, your, a little bit of a controversial, uh, character in this, in this, um, presidential right. race and a libertarian party. And you talked about how you've slowed down a little bit, kind of backed off a little bit. and But you do describe yourself as somebody that will be able to confront uh, President Trump
2: yeah, because absolutely. of
0: your attitude.
2: Yeah. There, well, there's kind of – I mean, I definitely have a swagger uh, and, and an attitude. And I, I uh, have sort of, uh, as of this week, branded myself the bad dog in the campaign and uh, I happily uh, uh, accept that title, bad dog, because I think we have a lot of good dogs running. And I think that might be the best thing to have under normal circumstances. But we have a mad dog in the Oval Office. And then we've got a guy running against him who, you know, in, in it, could, it could be argued, uh, you know, is a guy that you really should be taking the keys away from Joe Biden. I mean, he's obviously not doing that well mentally. Um, so that's the no- the normal life is that the fringe parties have nominated two really fringe characters. not only are they ancient uh, but Trump is uh, not somebody who believes in upholding the Constitution. Uh, he's never read the Constitution of the Bill of Rights. he doesn't know anything about it um, and I felt like he should have been impeached right away mm-hmm. for not upholding the principle of equal protection of the law and access to justice. This is a man who looks out the window, and I'm not saying he's racist. I'm saying this is a guy who uses skin color as a way of, as as a, as a tool for campaigning and advancing himself politically, and that to me is is uh, so offensive. And so against anything I believe in and so against anything anybody believes in who believes in uh, the the principles set forth in the 14th Amendment. Uh, And so so he's got to go. And I don't see anybody who is who is throwing their hat in the ring uh, in the Democrats uh, or the libertarians who have uh, what it takes to go toe to toe with this guy or or even what it takes to make a case to the press because really the nominee of this party is going to have one opportunity the day after the national convention to impress the media that that he or she has the swagger to really be a threat and i think that that i am that person i think i'm singular in that regard and obviously my opponents are all strong people and they can make their own case um but uh but we've seen examples in this campaign already so, so some people will cite the Florida Convention as uh, an example of bad behavior. But on that night, I stood up for what I believed. I took the fire for two hours um, and, uh, and everybody else sat. And they really haven't had anything to say about it since. So I'm like, you know, if you want to be the nominee for a party that has the same access to the Oval Office as the Democrats and Republicans, you know, my way of thinking, you got to get in the room. And you have to have thoughts and opinions on these things that are going on around you. And if you're not showing people that now, how can anybody imagine that you're going to show America that if you're the nominee?
0: Right. But wouldn't you argue, I agree with it as well, but wouldn't you argue that maybe a lot of people that went through that whole 2016 election Mm -hmm. and got that bad taste from President Trump for that style of campaigning, that kind of swagger—I guess you could call it—for him got a bad taste of it, and now are kind of reliving that with you, and are like, "Man, I, I don't want this again."
2: Well, I would ask you, who is the president
0: <laughs> right Donald now? Trump. President Trump. Yep,
2: Donald Trump. Okay, so Donald. So, so this is one of the things. That, there's been some talk that Justin Amash might get into this race, right? So Justin Amash it has less stature than all of the Republicans Trump ate and swallowed whole uh, in 2016. So stature doesn't doesn't help anything. Stature doesn't mean anything anymore. What this is, the presidency we're talking about. So if you're going to the presidency is a unique office in that it's in the oxygen 24 hours a day, seven days a week all the time. And uh, you have to like the fight. You have to like that the lights are on. You have to enjoy that the microphone is always hot. You have to like that. You have to like the chaos. You have to thrive on the chaos. So if we're talking about Senator or Congress, yeah, fine. You want a nice, obedient, good dog for that because you're going to sit on a committee. That's literally what you're running to do. But if you're running for president in 2020, when Donald Trump is unwinding the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, you want a bad dog. You want a guy who's going to get up in his grill and be able to go toe-to-toe with him and make a monkey out of him, because that's what he is. He, he, gets, he gets away with what he gets. He's an open mic comic. You know, he would, he would fail so miserably at the comedy store in the late show on Saturday night, he wouldn't be able to buy a laugh. He's the guy who farts in church. That's who he is right? You put him in an austere environment in the White House, it's very easy to get a laugh there. You put him on stage with someone like myself who's been on his feet for 40 years in every conceivable environment and actually understands the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in and out and is able to frame stories uh, in a way that's very punchy from a libertarian perspective, that creates a tremendous amount of opportunity, especially if you consider what happened with somebody like Jesse Ventura. That's the template for what I'm doing.
1: I mean, I see what you're saying and I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I would say from uh, just my, my own personal perspective as just a normal citizen, um, you know, the Trump presidency has been such a shit show. I've all right. got stopped engaging, um, Watching, hearing, listening to any news at all because it's just I can't take it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, you know, at this point wouldn't you know? I certainly I would want somebody that could, like you said, go toe to toe with him because he's a force to be reckoned with in a really senile way. Um, but not, but I don't want a force to be reckoned with in. Or I don't want somebody that can go toe-to-toe with him in a way that is more of the same nonsense, that seems more of this, like, you know. Right.
2: You, so when you, I say toe-to-toe, know. when I say toe-to-toe, what I'm saying is someone who can control the narrative. In the way that I've been controlling the narrative in the campaign this last week, when I said, look, I will debate any one of my candidate, any one of my opponents one-on-one. So five or six of them have agreed. That means I get five debates and age get one. So I'm controlling the narrative. And so with Trump, I believe I can control the narrative and make him respond. And that is something that no one has been able to do with him. Yeah. I
0: think the way you're going about to control the narrative is definitely maybe a, a good strategy for for somebody like Trump. But I think somebody like Berman Supreme or even Dan Berman will argue kind of the same. They're like, well, we have this shtick that we're we're going with that would be – that would control the narrative, which I completely disagree with in their strategy because all it is is a distraction in my opinion.
2: I mean, so put you – you have to – so what, I, what I'm talking – when I'm talking to delegates these days in particular, I'm asking them to imagine the world as viewed through the lens – Of an ivy league journalist at the new york times or any of the any of the any one of the other wall street traded media right so you sit down dan berman and Verman supreme and mark whitney and you're an ivy league journalist and you're looking for a great story uh and and you're trying to evaluate who represents a legitimate uh argument you know i think that question kind of answers itself and i'm friends with these guys um, but, uh, I haven't seen anything, you know, Vermin is such a, you know, as a performing artist, I have such respect for Vermin. Uh, I had a chance to see him, you know, perform some stand-up in Florida the night before the debate. And I used to own a comedy club for like five years. And, and I don't think I've ever seen a freer spirit on stage, you know, than Vermin Supreme and, uh, and directionally, you know, I'm, directionally I'm kind of on the same page with Adam Kokesh and Vermin. I mean, I get where they're, why they're so frustrated and why they want to burn things down, but uh, you know, in being debates with with Verma, one of the things I've noticed, and I get this too, is that it feels to me like after he answers when he answers a question, he he, he always he always gets to laugh right away, and it seems to me that he feels like once he's gotten the laugh, his his job is done, and he never answers directly a question, and if he were to ever do that uh or oh, he would be a a real force to be reckoned with but that's something that he doesn't do that i've noticed
0: whenever i watch a, a libertarian debate and vermin is in it or dan is in it anything they say i can't track it i can't stay on track with what they're saying i can't really understand i guess in a way what they're saying because it's just their performance is so distracting so you don't really get what right. Their principle is you don't really get what what their thought process is because everything else they do with the 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 disguise or the yeah. you know the costume and then like you said Vermin with his jokes you don't right. remember what what was it that he was answering
2: right yeah I think well there's a couple a couple of things there first of all the the uh, The debates that happen at the state conventions, I think if you've seen one, you've seen them all. They're very boilerplate. Yeah. And it's very easy to fake it. I mean, any moron can run for president as a libertarian. You just need to memorize the answers to the top 10 frequently asked questions. And we only get 60 seconds. And you can literally just kind of vamp your way through, which is why I'm excited about this virus <laughs> because uh, this uh, I think you're going to see an, an explosion of online debates between candidates one-on-one and between groups of candidates uh, and I think that's going to be an opportunity for people to get to know candidates better than they ever could and if there is not a three-dimensional analog convention in Austin Texas there's certainly going to be uh, there, there are meant to be five people in the national debate um and that certainly i would imagine will happen online you know i've been asking delegates you know just just put me on that debate stage there are five slots and if you're me or any candidate looking at this you've got you know jacob hornberger is libertarian famous uh you know vermin and adam are internet famous they always have a lot of followers in the straw polls in all the states so there are really only two slots available for everybody else and you got twenty people. I expect those three people to to make the top five, and then there's two slots for everybody else. And you know who knows where that's going to land.
1: I'm just I'm just listening to you guys. I'm I'm I'll agree with James what you were saying. I don't know too much about um, Vermin and Dan, just a little bit that I was uh, kind of checking out earlier. But Mark, I'll say I was watching uh, your videos on your Facebook page yesterday, and I felt a little bit of the same. I wasn't really uh, it was a little hard to track. It was a little hard to – I did get some, some information in there uh, here and there. Right. But it felt a little bit more like I think while, while people, you know, as a society want to shake things up and want to see some change and change revolution, I think at the same time people innately need some sense of security and stability and consistency. Right. Um so, how do you balance that out? Your videos were ser- were certainly pretty entertaining, but it, uh, there
2: I think've done, I've done uh, awesome. I think I've done four, four four episodes so far. So it's uh, uh, these daily things that I'm doing are uh, this daily live at five. It's something that is sort of writing itself each day. and I sort of have this rule that uh, you know, I'll fail better tomorrow, and every day is another opportunity to fail better. So the uh, but there is sort of a format that's emerging where I show up with two or three things on my mind and then the people have questions. Um, but it is every day, seven days a week. So I definitely want it to be entertaining. I want it to be uh, soothing in the sense that just by the act of showing up every day, seven days a week, that there is something regular that people can count on. Um, I don't think anybody wants to hear somebody sit there and uh, just chant, uh, you know, mindlessly uh, uh, 30 minutes a day from a script about uh, freedom and liberty. But each day is different. So today uh, the show is actually going to be a pretty serious show. It's about a woman in Texas who got five years for voting. She got five years in prison for voting. And I'll give you one guess what color skin she has. Mm. Um, and uh, so I heard
1: so, about that. What was the yeah. uh, not to not to ruin your shtick for the evening, but what was the background on that? I remember. Well, the
2: background that. is that she had not fully completed all of the elements of her federal uh, term of imprisonment, which included a uh, three year term of supervised release. So she so all federal prisoners are placed on supervised release, usually for three years and so until that is completed you're considered to still be uh completing your term of imprisonment cuz it's an element of your of your sentence uh and she went she went down and she committed the crime of voting can you imagine that and uh uh so I'll tell the details it's a story I've been following for about 6 months now and uh the reason that it bubbled up that it's going to be the main topic in today's uh, episode is because yesterday the Texas Court of Appeals affirmed her sentence, uh, so I think she's got now the option of going to the Texas Supreme Court uh, beyond the the intermediate appellate court. Uh, but um, uh, but I want to tell a story about how I would respond to this if I was the president, and uh, and you know tune in today. It's going to be a very interesting story. It's going to be a very presidential story, and it's a story that probably I am the only one in this race, Democrat or Libertarian, who is capable of telling the story because you have to have a certain background to understand the opportunities that a president has in a situation like this. And mind you, her prison term that she got is a state sentence. It's a state prison term and we all know presidents cannot pardon somebody Who's convicted of a state crime, but I'm going to tell you how, as president, I can do that.
1: Well, this is, I mean, this just goes back to this kind of shit we were talking about with, you know, the virus and and the way it's affecting, you know, humanity and society. And like, why? Why five years? Like, what? Five years in prison for
2: voting and and, that uh,
1: on the system, on the resources. It's just so. It's such overkill. It's so unnecessary. It brings forth so many different issues and so many different facets and so many conversations that, like, need to be had.
2: Well, here are a couple of questions, right? Are they going to take this woman and put her in prison now and maybe have her get the death sentence from the coronavirus? Are they going to actually do that? Mm-hmm. Right? That's exactly. one question. Right. And then the more permanent question is, why don't felons vote? Why are felons not allowed to vote? When you, when you go to prison, so 30 years ago when I had to go to prison, I, re, I, I say I'm running for president to return authority to the highest office in the land, which is the office of citizen. So when I had to go to prison 30 years ago, I retained that title of citizen. I had access to the courts. I was able to write, express my First Amendment, uh, use the First Amendment to write letters to the editor, which I did every two weeks to my local paper. Uh, you're able to write a book. You're able to associate freely with other prisoners that you're incarcerated with. Uh, you're able to take advantage of all sorts of uh, rights that follow you right into prison. So why do we not let felons vote? It wouldn't cost a single dime. It would—the it would, uh, vast majority of people incarcerated are coming back into society. It would invite them to participate in society as a citizen. They still have that title. Uh, and, of course, the political reason is that incumbent politicians don't want people voting. They right. don't want people voting. I was, I was, I
1: was, I was just going to ask you, other than stigma, what is the reason for that?
2: They don't want people voting. They do everything they can to keep voting to a minimum. So in 2016, half the people who were eligible eligible to vote did not vote. Of the half who did vote for president, half of those were not registered as Democrats or Republicans. So in 2016, somewhere between 12 and 13% of the vote was cast by members of the Republican Party and members of the Democratic Party. It's literally fringe. You know, 75% of the market is available to libertarians if we can learn to con- to you know, communicate with people about issues that where they agree. So the, the war on, or the trade war, the drug war, the war on terror, those wars poll at 75% people want to get rid of them. Right. So why do we go out and say, you know, I've heard Jacob Hornberger say, if I could push a button today and get rid of social security, I would do it. And, and he doesn't tag that with a sentence that says, but we have an obligation to uphold the contracts citizens have been forced into and make right. sure the United States performs on it. He doesn't, he doesn't do that pivot, and and that pushes people away.
0: You know, we were talking about how felons cannot vote, and I think it is, like you said, one, po- incumbents don't want more voters. They want less voters. And also, I think it's because felons see the bullshit. They were put into prison
2: exactly.
0: for a bullshit reason, And now they have, if they had the right to vote, they had the perfect opportunity to make changes for this not to happen to other people.
2: So we know too much. We know too much. I often say that, you know, free people live the First Amendment. Prisoners live the entire Bill of Rights. Um, So, you know, one of the things I was able to experience as the guy who was the law clerk in the prison law library, uh, you know, you have people walking in there, or first-time drug offenders who dropped out of high school. And they can tell you chapter and verse about the Bill of Rights because of the experience that they've been put in, put through. And you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, the incumbent politicians know that the 25 million, the 8% of Americans who are alive right now, who have felony convictions, the vast majority of whom are not allowed to vote, that those people would be casting much more informed ballots and that is not good for incumbents, right?
1: That's a really, really interesting point. It's a really good point. It wasn't until I my experience with law enforcement and the justice system that I started to educate myself. And I didn't, I, I wasn't um, incarcerated, but right. I had, I had, uh, I it was a little too close for comfort, and I spent about six months fully immersing myself into it. <laughs>
2: oh yeah oh yeah
1: and and then finally i i mean honestly i got to the point where i was like this is so fucking depressing and i can't there's nothing i felt helpless i'm
2: offended by that language by okay. the way i just want to... <laughs> i <I'm> sorry <laughs> i'm offended by that language <laughs> oh
1: sorry well i felt really helpless and powerless and being able to change anything and i i i you know, I couldn't continue to have it in my line of vision. Yeah, but it was like I said when I came up against law enforcement that I realized. You know, I started to really educate myself.
2: Yeah, it's a real thing when you have that hammer, uh, that guillotine blade hanging over your head, and it is a, uh, it's a lifestyle decision to fight it. You know, um, uh, the vast majority of people who go through the federal system, you know, upwards of ninety five percent plead guilty. Uh, not necessarily because they feel guilty. Uh, it's just that, uh, you know, and Elon Musk has made this point. Nobody in the United States can afford a criminal defense. Uh, if I add, When I add up the amount of hours that I spent on my case over the years, and mind you, I, I won three appeals. I beat the Department of Justice three times. I spent three years negotiating IRS from a million dollars down to 20000 um, when, you, when you make that lifestyle choice, uh, the, the amount of hours it takes is just, I, I forget, it came out to like, I, I, I think I spent probably 5,000 hours in total uh, on all the various civil litigation and criminal litigation and IRS litigation that fell out of uh, my uh, losing a company in my 20s um, you know, over 30 years ago. Uh, but um, I was able to take that. And start a company that I've had for the last 20 years where I literally sell law to the lawyers. I sell the law to the lawyers. And, uh, uh, and I'm not a lawyer. But unlike this woman in Texas, you know, I can take my white face and put it on the Internet and say, as a litigator, which is true, I am a litigator. I will sue you. I sued Barack Obama when he bombed Libya. I was the only citizen in the country who did it. I spent $60,000 of my own money precisely because of my experience of going through the justice system and what I learned about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I knew he was acting as a war criminal, and I was the only citizen who stood up. And uh, uh, what happened was that Muammar Gaddafi got killed before, and then then the judge dismissed it as moot. But I do have Obama's lawyers on record as saying— Uh, Obama called what he was doing in Libya a limited kinetic operation. Translated, that means if you're too poor to shoot back, it's not war. And Obama's lawyers argued in writing that the Supreme Court has never defined war. So who's to really say what war is anyway? They literally argued that.
0: Wow. Right now, government uses war, the word war, so loosely. And it Mm -hmm. really resonates with people. You know, even like you said, Trump bringing up that he's a wartime president this coronavirus.
2: Yeah. Like a credential.
0: Exactly. And it almost justifies people to give up their rights yeah. to this person because it sounds, oh, wow, there, there's a war. How scary. I need to allow this person to protect me in order to do that. I need to give up my Absolutely. freedoms.
2: Absolutely. And
1: what is the lack of trust in ourselves as citizens that we just blindly do that?
2: There is, no, there is no nation on the planet who has killed more people in countries that have not attacked their country than the United States. China doesn't do it. Russia doesn't do it. We're the only country that does this. And The reason, the reason our leaders, our quote-unquote leaders, are able to do this is because we are not a party to the Rome statute. So what Barack Obama did, he was able to do with impunity in Libya because he's not accountable to the International Criminal Court. There are many uh, leaders of nations who are in prison because they were put on trial, because their nations are a party to that treaty. And I have said that as president, I will sign the Rome Statute, and that will put an end to this aggressive war immediately, because, uh, you know, these people, they may be war criminals, and they may be willing to take capitalism to an extreme where they're willing to make money killing brown people in countries that have never attacked the United States, but they don't want to be put in a cage. So when I sign the Rome Statute, everybody will be under threat of being put in a cage. And you'll see this bullshit come to a screeching halt.
0: Definitely a great way of holding people accountable. I mean, why isn't the U.S. citizen, though, keeping government accountable? What At what point in history, and I, I kind of have my ideas, have yeah. we decided we're going to stop holding government accountable and we're just going to let them do whatever the hell they want?
2: It has to happen. Immediately after the child is born, you know, the it, it, one of the things that's amazing to me is how, you know, you watch the you watch the Democrats this, this this year. They had an opportunity this year to embrace the Bill of Rights. And if they had done that, the American people would have met them with gratitude, you know, uh, but they but they didn't do it. Obama had that opportunity, too. But instead, the first speech Obama gave as president was to the CIA to assure them they had nothing to worry about in him, and they didn't. He went on to move, he moved the drone program and his assassination program to the CIA from the Department of Defense to avoid accountability. So I'm sixty. So you know, and when I was a kid in the late sixties and early seventies, it was the people from the Ivy League law schools who are out there talking about the Bill of Rights and the Constitution the way libertarians do. They don't do that anymore. They lead the charge on this warlike behavior. They lead the charge on this unconstitutional behavior. Um, They are literally identical to Republicans. There is no difference. Um, They might give you a little more health care or something. But when it comes to the fundamental... Injunctions that are embedded in the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the 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 injunctions that we the people impose on the government to preserve our natural rights, they don't have that conversation, and as a result, you know we see people like my friend Adam Kokesh getting a lot of traction for just wanting to blow everything up and dissolve the United States of America, and then and then I have to, I have to come around and the argument I get from Kokesh supporters is you don't get your rights from a piece of paper. And I'm like, yes, that's true. But as president, that piece of paper, that Second Amendment commands me as president to defend you and only you if you're the only citizen in the country who wants to have a house full of guns and the other 300 million citizens are against you, I will surround your house by the with the feds to protect you from the mob. That's what the Second Amendment commands me to do. So yes, you don't get your rights from a piece of paper, but those rights are secured by that piece of paper. And as unconstitutional as many of the the preconditions to coming into possession of a firearm are, it is still true that if you put your mind to it and you want to have 500 guns in your house, you can do that in the United States. So the United States is a pretty great place to live. And that's why I think a lot of people don't vote is because it's a pretty great place to live. You can not vote. You can ignore the duties that come with citizenship and still have a pretty fun life. Uh, But it could be a lot better if we could get people to pay attention. We could fix a lot of a libertarian president uh, reinstates the separation of powers between the executive branch and the and the legislative branch immediately. And that in and of itself is a huge change. And I have said, if I'm president, I'm going to exercise my authority to declassify state secrets and use that brick bat to threaten Democrats or Republicans to get them to behave in Congress. And that's a brick bat that you have to have some swagger to wield. And I haven't seen anybody in this campaign, Democrat or Libertarian, that has the balls to even threaten it, much less do it.
1: Those are well. Those are some interesting points about why people are not holding the the government accountable. I think you're out.
2: Where are right? the United States of Entertainment? You know.
1: Well, I think it's easy. It, it's <clears throat> certainly easier to have your blinders on and worry about your own happy little life. And it takes a lot of stamina and rigorous energy to come up against something that at this point has so much power and control and how in the world do you even begin to, you know, hold our government accountable? People don't have that kind of emotional stamina or even that, that, that belief system to drive them to do it.
2: Um, That's one of the reasons I think I need to be the nominee. Okay. Because I have had the personal experience of beating the largest law firm in the world three times on appeal as a high school graduate, there's no universe in which that happens, but I've had that happen. And I've been able to take that learning and turn it into a company where 40,000 lawyers over the years have subscribed to my service. And I'm just an idiot from a little public high school in the middle of nowhere in Vermont. And so I think that and, and I sued the president to end participation of the United States Armed Forces in a foreign civil war. Now, I know when I do that, that's a very impractical thing to do. But I love the good fight. It bounces me out of bed in the morning. And I want to teach people how to have that swagger. You know, the reason I have swagger is because I understand the power that comes with the title of citizen. I understand that we literally are in charge. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we are responsible for it. And if, if the government is not behaving itself, it's up to us to, to bring the government in line and i believe that i'm someone who can lead that narrative in a way that will excite and inspire people in a way that nobody else in the, on the Demo- in the democratic party or the libertarian party is able to do just just because i love the good fight i want to i want to wake up every day and fight with these people i don't want to meet them around a table and meet them and, and, and meet them halfway i want to use the brick bat that a president has of declassifying state secrets to dig through the archives and find out what these people have been hiding from us over the years. You know, they always give us the the official reason why they do things. I want to dig out and find the real reasons and threaten to expose these things unless they repeal some laws and start behaving in a constitutional manner. And that's something a president is authorized by the people to do.
1: Well, I think that's the only way to – I mean – accomplish anything at all is to absolutely by example and to you know to um inspire other people with your example you you know and and it certainly appears that that's what you're doing
2: so if we're living in a time of maximum government right now before this virus before this virus people were at maximum disgust with democrats or republicans so you throw this you throw this maximum government on top of that maximum disgust And we have a tremendous opportunity to raise a bunch of for a libertarian presidential nominee to raise a bunch of money for this party, because that's really what it's about. So that didn't happen with Gary Johnson the last time. That money got laundered out the back door to his consultants. And it's a very easy thing to do. I've read all 257 pages of the Federal Election Commission guidelines, and it did not come to any surprise to me that the system the Republicans and Democrats have put in place for themselves with the Federal Election Commission is very porous. It's like a, it's like a colander, and you can easily, you know, Justin Amash, his brothers run everything. It's a, a Ron Paul. It's a family business. It's a family business and uh, it's not my business and I don't need the money. I don't want the money. I want the money to be used to recruit and train an army of activists and candidates. Uh, and so, and Mike Bloomberg, by the way, just proved you can spend $500 million and it doesn't move the needle. So, right. so you know, I could be the nominee and get people all fired up with my story and get a ton of coverage and maybe a hundred million dollars comes in. Right. Let's just say that you could spend all that on advertising. It's not going to move the needle. A great story will move the needle. But whatever money comes in, it should be used for the party because this is the windfall that we have every four years. So that's why I'm trying to get delegates to focus on the business decision, not the political decision, the business decision and who is going to get the most attention who's going to bring in the most money you know if you nominate jacob hornberger the the lights are going to be on for about 24 hours after the convention and then they're going to go off that guy's not going to get people excited he's not going to bring money in you know he's 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 a packing peanut wrapped in oatmeal for god's sake
1: <laughs> let me ask you this so so I've heard everything that you've said and and I think you have some really, really great points and some really great ideas and i I like where your head's at, man, I do. Uh, so what would be your suggestion to the individual citizens um, in how to with with the with this catastrophic event that we're all experiencing and the change that is inevitably coming because of it? what would be your advice um, your suggestions mm-hmm. to people individually um, mm-hmm. to to invoke some real change after all um-
2: uh, my my advice is to believe in the potential of taking action. Whatever you can do to throw massive action at some new initiative within this adverse situation. I'm somebody who's, who is, my family and I have suffered every conceivable adverse consequence that can happen from losing a business in the United States. Bankruptcies are going to be through the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you have a small business, you need to get with your bankruptcy lawyer and start planning. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Assets that are transferred 366 days before bankruptcy cannot be clawed back by creditors. But if you transfer assets within a year, those assets can be clawed back and used to pay off debts. So get with your bankruptcy lawyer. If you have a business that you feel like it's going to go under, plan ahead. So many people transfer assets on the eve of bankruptcy only to find out, that, that money is going to get clawed back. And so there are a lot of things you can do to plan the sunset of something you have going that's going to be destroyed, but simultaneously get to work on what, what, uh, on what you can do to uh, create opportunities for yourself on the, uh, on, the, on the ass end of this adverse situation. If I learned one thing uh, through the process of losing two homes, 60 acres of land, Seven restaurants, 125 employees uh, uh, went through, you know, three corporate bankruptcy proceedings where millions of dollars and three corporations were involved, litigating with the Department of Justice for years, serving literally 700 days in five different federal prisons on the installment plan because I kept winning appeals. But I was able to cut my time in the cage in half through the effort I put in. And all the learning that took place, I was able to turn that into a business. So the, what I like to say is uh, uh, adversity is the mother, uh, uh, desperation is the mother of invention. And uh, when I'm president, all Americans will be desperate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really hope that
0: if anything that's going on now, you know, we do take advantage of it, as the liberty movement. You know, you and the Libertarian Party and all of us just really take this opportunity. I mean, it's, it's a sad time, but it's the perfect opportunity to really progress and, and gain. Uh, and
2: also, also recognizing that this is a time of multiple truths. There's nobody here that has all the answers. So if, if the narrative, if the libertarian narrative during this time is one that just bitches and moans about the overreach of government, And is not talking about the opportunities we have when life is normal. I think you have to, at a minimum, you have to multitask. Otherwise, you're going to push people away. Um, And, and, you know, if you lose the opportunity to provide inspiration and hope and empowerment to people, then uh, you're frittering away the opportunity that we have here as a party.
0: Right. Uh, you want to give a, a plug-in on your campaign and let people know how they can find you? And
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, MarkWhitney.com is the, is the website. And if you go to MarkWhitney.com and click on Memoir, one of the best 84 minutes you can spend during this downtime you have is watching my memoir, Fool for a Client. And if you watch that memoir, you'll see how I communicate with uh, Democrat and Republican audiences at a high level. And that is the number one reason I should be the nominee of this party. And also live at five, my daily Facebook program, 5 p.m. Pacific time. And then next week, we should have a lot of debates between other candidates. I'm doing a lot of interviews. And um, and if you're a delegate and you're listening, all I'm asking for you from you is to put me on that debate stage, whether it's an analog debate stage or a digital debate stage. Just keep me in your top five. Make sure I'm up on that stage, bringing the heat. Even if you're not going to vote for me, make sure I'm up there on that stage putting the pressure on the other four.
0: There you go. Thank you so much, Mark, for being on my uh, podcast. It was a great honor and a great privilege. And, better, I and I think Stevie and I will take take you up on that pizza.
2: All right. That sounds great. Uh, let's. Uh, we'll have a black market pizza sometime. Uh.
0: i Sounds good. All, All right. right. Thanks so much.
2: Very good, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate hey, it. Bye. You guys have a great day. Take care.